passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. But today, we are still in the Gospel of Mark. So take out your Bibles, as I said, turn to Mark chapter 2, and uh, also take out your outlines. And while you are doing that, I just want to take a moment or two just to tell you that um, the good news of Jesus Christ that the Bible teaches and that we believe is something that is actually a very exclusive message. Only the good news of Jesus Christ can save your life. There are no other options out there. That's not very popular in our culture right now because we live in a pluralistic uh, postmodern culture where everybody thinks they have a right to their opinion, but they also think that everyone's opinion is equally right, and that's just not true. Maybe the best way you can think about this is a, is a popular bumper sticker that's out there. I'll ask Jeremy to put that up. Maybe you've seen this. I think the, there is, there's the bumper sticker. You guys seen this bumper sticker, Coexist? It's essentially saying that all religions are one and the same, and all religions are essentially teaching the same thing. They should just be able to coexist together. Well, according to the Bible, that's just not true. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusive. It is unique. The good news of Jesus Christ does not mix and blend with other religions. Because what other religions teach and what Jesus teaches are completely diametrically opposed. For instance, uh, the gospel is not compatible with Islam. It doesn't mix with Buddhism. It doesn't mix with Jehovah's Witnesses. It doesn't mix with other liberal churches and what many of them teach. And quite honestly, the gospel of Jesus Christ does, does not mix with cultural Judaism that is, was taught in the day of Jesus. Now, why is the good news of Jesus Christ so different from these other religions? Well, here's the reason. Essentially, other religions try to tell you how you can take care of your own sin. This is how you behave your way to God, how you live your rightly and therefore earn your way to God. Where Jesus says, you can't earn your way to God. We cannot live right. So Jesus lived right for us. He died in our place for our sins because we cannot save ourselves. Other religions are about how you behave your way to God, where Jesus says it's all about what you believe. It's trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for us that we cannot do for ourselves, which is how we are saved. The good news of the gospel is we don't trust in us, in our failability to be able to live a right life. We trust in Jesus and his ability to live a right life in our place. So other religions tell you to behave your way to God, which never works. Where Jesus says, you believe me because I have lived the life you cannot live and I have died in your place. Now, incidentally, this is one of the problems with uh, interfaith prayer meetings. Maybe you've heard about these or seen these where all the different faiths get together and they pray to God over an issue. 
the problem is when Christians participate in that, it's subtly saying that all religions are praying to the same God. They're just different ways of approaching him. And that's not true. The Bible says that Jesus is exclusive. One of my favorite verses on that is Acts 4.12. If you have not memorized this verse, you really should commit it to heart so you can quote it because you'll need it a lot of times in life. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now the verses we're going to look at this morning in the Gospel of Mark are going to remind us that the good news of Jesus Christ is a very exclusive message that's different from all other religions. And the gospel message of Jesus Christ cannot coexist or be blended with other religions, including the Judaism of Jesus' day and by extension, all other false religions of today. Before we actually put our finger in the text, let me just remind you of where we were at last week and what we had learned. We were reading in the text and we saw that Jesus had just called a man named Levi to be one of his disciples. Last week we saw Levi was a repentant tax collector. Now Levi has quite an interesting history if you follow the Bible. He starts out as a tax collector, which is one of the most hated professions by the Jews. He's, he repents. Jesus calls him to be his disciple. He doesn't just end up as one of his disciples. He ends up as one of the 12 apostles. And then Levi actually goes on to ultimately write the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in your New Testament. What an incredible testimony about how God can take someone whose life is broken and someone who is far from him and use him in a great way for the Gospel and for his kingdom. But at this moment, when Levi was just initially called to be a disciple, even though he'd repented, calling him to be an disciple was a completely unacceptable thing in the minds of the Jews. The Jews in general, and the Pharisees in particular, prided themselves in separating themselves from anybody who they deemed a sinner, especially serious sinners like tax collectors. They wanted nothing to do with people that struggled with sin, especially people who struggled with great sin. Tax collectors, they were shunned. They were ostracized. They were considered the very scum of the earth. They were, committed, they were considered traitors to their own people. They were barred from even attending the temple. They were called spiritual lepers. And Jesus just took a repentant tax collector and said, Follow me. I want you to be part of my team. Now, at this point in the narrative of the Gospel of Mark, the Pharisees are beginning to realize that what Jesus is preaching and what they are preaching is not the same thing. That Jesus' gospel message and their message cannot coexist. That Jesus has something that's different and exclusive. So let's go ahead and read the text in uh, Mark chapter 2. We're going to be reading 18, verses 18 through 22. I'd ask you to stand out of reverence for the Word of God as we read it together. Follow along as I read in your copy of God's Word. 
Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. That ends the reading of God's word, and you may be seated. Now, these verses actually break apart into a very simple outline. They are, number one, uh, they ask a question of Jesus. Number two, Jesus gives an answer. And then by way of analogy, Jesus gives an explanation as to why they uh, are asking the question in the first place. So let's go ahead and work through our text. <coughs> Firstly, Jesus broke Judaism's man-made rules by feasting when they expected him to be fasting. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Incidentally, you'll find that most of the conflicts with Jesus in the Bible are built around a question, and this is no different. And the question here is, why is Jesus not following the traditions that the Pharisees and the Jewish traditions that even the disciples of John the Baptist have, be have been following for years? Why is Jesus not fasting like these guys did? In fact, this is very um, important to notice because remember where Jesus just came out of? Just came out of a huge party at Levi's house. He was feasting and eating all the good food while the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist were hungry. So you can see the contrast comes up in their, in their minds here. Now, it might be interesting for you to even hear the disciples of John the Baptist are involved in this situation at all. Uh, and here's what we often subconsciously think. We subconsciously think that all the disciples of John the Baptist instantly went and followed Jesus when he came on the scene. And John the Baptist did, did identify Jesus as the Messiah. He said, this is, behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist did also say, he, speaking of Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. But remember that he did that at the very end of his ministry. His ministry was at least a year and a half long. It was in the, the wilderness and people came from cities. They went out to the wilderness to hear him preach they were baptized for repentance, and then they left and they went back to the cities. And they oftentimes lost touch with John the Baptist. Because remember, John the Baptist identified Jesus and did the handoff to Jesus at the end of his ministry. But what about all the people who repented and left? They were still following John the Baptist and really hadn't 
heard about this handoff to Jesus. If anything, by the way, the disciples of John the Baptist, what they would have done when they went back to their cities is they would have been even more serious about their religion. They would have taken the cultural Judaism and the practices that was common on that day, and they would have really done everything they could to double down and to follow them. And one of the practices that was very common in that day was fasting, going without food. So the Pharisees, who are the ultra-legalistic group, they're commonly going without food. The disciples of John the Baptist, who have sort of had this uh, recommitment experience and they haven't heard about Jesus, they're also going without food. They are fasting. But Jesus is feasting. Now, before we look at the, the conflict here, let me explain to you a little background about fasting from the Scriptures. So this is point A in your outlines. What does the Bible teach about fasting? One of the first things you need to know is there was only one required fast in the law of Moses. It was known as the Day of Atonement. It's in Leviticus chapter 16. It's also called Yom Kippur. It was one day, it was a one-day mandatory fast where people were intentionally heartbroken for their sin. They were repentant of their sin because on the end of the Day of Atonement, they celebrated God's forgiveness of their sin. So it made sense. It was a time to reflect upon your sinfulness and to really grasp it and then celebrate God's forgiveness of it. But after that, really for the most part, all the other fasts were voluntary, not mandatory. They were usually in repentance for sin or when they were seeking God's help in a time of crisis. You know, if somebody senses their sin and they're heartbroken to their sin and they call out to God and they pray and they fast asking for forgiveness. Or you see maybe the nation of Israel is in a really tough pickle of a situation and God's people, they, they fast and they pray asking God to come to the rescue. You see that in the Old Testament. By the way, that's still a legitimate practice today. If you are in a tough situation and you need God to come to the rescue, an appropriate response is to fast and to pray. You substitute eating time for prayer time, asking for God's grace and mercy in your life. Now, just to let you know, there were a few other fasts added in later, later Judaism, like the fast of Purim, talked about in Esther 9.31, but they're very little fasts, and there's not much detail given about those fasts. So the picture of fasting in the Old Testament is one clear, mandatory fast for one day a year. Most of the rest of them are all voluntary in response to repentance of sin or asking God to come to the rescue. Now, what happens is the Jews had bolted onto this a whole bunch of other stuff. They had added a lot of fasts that they expected you to do that are not in the Bible at all. Let's look at the Pharisees. The Pharisees at this time, they expected you to fast twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. You go without food. Is this in the Scripture any place? Absolutely not. It's their tradition that they have bolted onto the Bible to say, look how much more uh, religious I am and how much more devout I am because I'm going without food twice a week. It's like worse than a wrestler. 
because they don't ever get a chance to get a break from this. To show you this in the Bible, incidentally, I wanted to show you just a, a little quote from Luke chapter 18. This is, uh, the, Jesus tells this particular story about a Pharisee and a tax collector, both coming before the temple to pray. And the Pharisee says this, standing by, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. Can you sense that self-righteousness coming out there? That pride? Look what I do. I fast twice a week. It's not in the scripture. They're judging Jesus for why he hasn't adopted their tradition and their man-made rules. You can sort of see what Jesus' answer is. Because it's not my father's rules. Now, by the way, the Jews of Jesus' day were actually more interested in looking good in front of others, other people, than in pleasing God. This idea of this pride and self-righteousness, look what I do to please God and, and to be pleasing before God, look at all the good things I do. It became sort of a very serious problem in cultural Judaism of Jesus' day. In fact, there were three pillars that the Jews liked to um, rest the actions of their faith upon. And they were this, prayer, the givings of alms, and fasting. Now, don't let the word alms throw you off. Alms is simply giving to the poor. It's a benevolent gift. And what happened is the Jews in Jesus' day, they did these things in a very external, in a very showy way. And the honest truth is, they weren't doing this because they loved God. They were doing this so they could be admired by other people. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, takes on these three pillars of Judaism that are commonly practiced in this day. And when you understand that as the background and you read Jesus' comments in the Sermon on the Mount, it makes a lot more sense. For instance, when it came to giving to the poor, this is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Could you imagine this? Somebody's going to be giving to the poor. Let's have a trumpet that announces their arrival and their presence. It's all about being seen by others and being admired by others rather than being admired by God. Their prayer, Jesus says this, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Imagine this, you know, going to the corner of the Dickinson County Courthouse and having your prayer time out loud with, for everybody else to see and to watch. Oh, they say, look, they are so religious. They're so devout. I just admire them. You're just doing it for show. And then comes the one we've been looking at today, fasting. <laughs> and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Same theme right there. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. 
Twice a week, they're walking around like this. Oh, they're making a big deal of this publicly. Oh, it's terrible. I'm fasting. It's Monday. You know, having a bad hair day, wearing junky clothes. Also, people would look at them and see them and admire them. And God's not impressed by that at all. Now, the question becomes, what kind of fasting does God actually want in our lives? And there's an interesting passage here I'd like to read. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him and see the weakness of his fastening he's bending over? Will you call this a fast? a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Is God more interested in his people oppressing themselves by not eating Monday and Thursday, or his people going out of their way to loosen the shackles on people who are caught in sin? Is people going out of their way to provide food for the hungry and to welcome into their homes the homeless and those needing a place of friend, friendship? What does God want? People who are not eating or people who are doing practical good for others? According to this passage in Isaiah, it's people who are doing practical good for others. So think about this. Was God more pleased with the Pharisees of Jesus' day who didn't eat on Monday and Thursday and then ignored the sinners as unclean? Or was he more pleased with Jesus who feasted because he was with the sinners, caring for the hurting, caring for the lost, and telling them the good news of the gospel? You see how this works? What true fasting is pleasing to God? Now, the story continues. The Jews of Jesus' day were actually out of step with understanding God's plan, is what Jesus says. <laughs> Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Jesus says, you don't understand. Like right now, it's like a time of a wedding. 
A wedding time is a time to celebrate. It's a time for joy. It's not a time for fasting and self-denial. I mean, think about this. We've already seen this. Jesus has been healing people by the scores, casting out demons. The kingdom of God is breaking into this world in an amazing way. Like there's whole areas and cities where there's nobody sick anymore because he's healed them all. The gospel message is being preached. Lives are being changed. It's not a time to, to fast. It's out of step with what God is doing at this time and his plan. In fact, rabbis in that day, they'd even made rabbinical rules telling people that they were not allowed to fast at weddings because you could picture it, you know, some guy trying to appear super pious would actually do that, be involved in a wedding and he's at the table there and they'd serve the prime rib and all these fancy meals and he would just sit there and can't eat. Well, what's wrong? It's Thursday. Stealing all the joy from the guests because he would be so caught up in self-righteousness and piety. By the way, just so you know, weddings in the ancient world were even more celebratory than the kind of weddings that we have today. We have a one-day party. They had a one-week party where people ate as much as they could all week long I mean, the idea was that the bride and groom were literally treated like kings and queens. It was intended to be the happiest week they would ever have in their life. Which is why fasting was completely disallowed during a time of a wedding. And Jesus said, you know, the Messiah is here. Ever since the beginning of creation, all the prophets have looked forward to the Messiah's arrival. And Jesus is here. And right since he's been here, you know, there's people are being healed. People are being cured. All kinds of good things are going on. Be in step with what God is doing at this time, not with just what you're used to from the past. And Jesus does say, oh, by the way, uh, there will be a time when my disciples are known for their fasting, not just their feasting. There'll be a time when the bridegroom is taken away, and in those days they will fast. And since most of us know the biblical history, we know what happened, how Jesus was betrayed, how Jesus was falsely accused, how Jesus was crucified on the cross. Do you think Jesus' disciples were feasting at that time? They were fasting at that time. I guarantee it. They were fasting, calling for God to come to the rescue. They were in prayer. They were heartbroken. They were forlorn. And they weren't fasting because it was just a Monday or a Thursday. They were fasting for a genuine right reason to fast, in brokenness and in desperation, calling out to God to save. Now, from this point... What, God, what Jesus does is he gives us two analogies. We've already seen the question about why is Jesus not fasting. He's given an answer because I'm not fasting, because it's your tradition, not God's tradition. And number two, it's completely out of step with the program that God is doing. And then he gives these two clarifying analogies why the Pharisees and John the Baptist's disciples fast, but he doesn't. And here's the point. 
Jesus didn't come to fix broken religion. He came to replace it. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, if you ever do laundry, you are familiar with the problem that comes along with using natural fabrics like cotton or wool, because you put it in hot water, you put it in a hot dryer, what happens, ladies? Now, I have always knew things would shrink, but I never understood how much things could actually shrink until one time I came home from college, I had my favorite sweater, and my grandmother washed it. I have never seen a shredder shrink so much. It literally went from fitting on a full-grown man to fitting on a doll, because it just shrunk. And what uh, Jesus says here is, by the way, you would know this in the ancient world. You never put a patch of unshrunk cloth onto a, you never put a piece of unshrunk cloth onto a hole in a patch of cloth that is already shrunk. Because as soon as that patch of unshrunk cloth gets wet or it gets warm and it dries, it'll shrink and it'll literally tear a bigger hole in the garment you were trying to mend, virtually ruining it. And Jesus says, essentially, the rituals, the ceremonies, all these extra rules of Judaism are like an old garment. You can't patch the holes in Judaism using just a little piece of the gospel and Jesus. They're incompatible. They can't coexist with one another. Jesus didn't come to patch a hole in Judaism, but he came to give us a completely new way to relate to God that is only through faith in him. You know how we take communion together. And when we take communion, we uh, go through the words that Jesus gave us and the night was betrayed. And when it comes to the cup, we always say, this cup is the new covenant, which is in my blood. No longer do we relate to God based on the old covenant from Mount Sinai, based much more on what we do. Now we relate to God what, based on what Jesus has done in our place, he has died. Our relationship with God is based upon faith in Jesus. Just as why in the book of Hebrews, it spends so much time saying that Jesus has done away with the old covenant to establish a new covenant, a completely new and unique way of us relating to God that is through Jesus Christ and Him alone and what He has done for us. Which is why the gospel message cannot coexist with the Judaism of Jesus' day or any other false religions of today. And Jesus gives us another clarifying analogy, but this one is about wineskins. He says, you never put new wine into old wineskins. 
Why would we do that? Well, you have to understand that in the ancient world, they didn't have wine bottles. You didn't put wine in a bottle and put a cork on it. What you had was an animal skin. You skinned an animal, and to the best of your ability, you tried to keep the skin intact. And then you sewed close the arm sections, and you try to so close any other holes, and you use that as your wine skin, and you put new wine into it, and what happened is the wine expanded, because as it would ferment, and the wine skins, they would stretch to accommodate that expansion. expansion. Then when you poured the wine out, and you, you were done, you didn't put new wine back into the old wine skins, because the stretch was already done. If you had to stretch it again, it would burst. You'd lose all of your wine, and you'd lose the skin. And what Jesus is saying is cultural Judaism is just like an old wineskin. You can't add the gospel to it without destroying it. The gospel and cultural Judaism cannot coexist. You have to let go of old Judaism and your old way of thinking about relating, relating to God and trust in Jesus and in Him alone. You have to let go of the things that made you feel right because you fasted on Monday and you fasted on Thursday. You trust in Jesus and in Him alone. Now, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what your life is like, but I'm willing to bet that you have certain religious traditions or ways of doing things that you have started to trust in instead of Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. We all have those things. Where it's because we've always done it that way, or that's the way we did it in church where I always grew up. And there's a sense of familiarity and a sense of security with that. But we also have to realize that we're not saved by any of those things. We're saved by faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Jesus is a total replacement of any other part of our man-made religion. As it says in Acts chapter 4.12, where I read earlier, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, just so you know, this little section of Scripture that we looked at, which is a little difficult, it's always talked about right after the calling of Levi, but it's not just talked about in Mark, it's also talked about in Matthew and in Luke. But Luke adds a little something extra, saying that this is what Jesus also said at this point immediately afterwards. Let no one, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good enough. What is Jesus talking about? What he is saying is this, is it's very natural for people to want to stay um, practicing their old religious practices that have been familiar with them, things that they've been accustomed to for years. Even if it's inferior, and it's nothing like the new wine or what Jesus is bringing, because they're accustomed to it, they want to stick with it. Think about this with Judaism. Judaism, the kind that these people were practicing, is something that's been passed down from father to son, from generation to generation. Can you imagine how hard it would be to let go of all their traditions and all their practices and say, you know what? 
All I have to do is trust in Jesus. That's a hard thing to do. But that's all they need to do. Now, all of us have to remember that it is very easy for us to want to hold on to old traditions and to old practices that have always been part of our life. Maybe not things that are not necessarily wrong. But remember, they don't save us. It's Jesus and Jesus alone that saves us. As I put in the application, simply one point I want to teach us today is this. Remember that Jesus is exclusive. Faith in him is the only way to be forgiven and made right with God. We can't patch him into another religion or into our man-made worship. We need to trust in Jesus alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this little passage. Even though it's different, difficult, we thank you that it teaches us that all we need is you, Jesus, and that you are completely exclusive, that we can't patch you into other religions, that it's by faith in you and faith in you alone that we are saved. Forgive us for the times where we have tried to trust in our own behavior, or in our own religious self-righteous practices that we have done, sort of like the uh, Jews in Jesus' day. And help us to trust in you, Jesus, and in you alone for all of our righteousness and our hope for tomorrow. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.